I was remembering a, an old cartoon this week, you know, not a, not a cartoon on TV, but the kind which you know, appears on a, on a page in the newspaper, in the funnies. Um, and I couldn't remember exactly what it was, but it was essentially the cartoon featured these two explorers making their way through a landscape full of strange vegetation. Uh, and the landscape stretched away as far as the eye could see, and it was these you know, two tiny-looking explorers in a huge land. Um, except that when you looked closely, it was clear that the explorers were fleas, and the landscape was the back of a dog, and all that vegetation was really just the dog's fur. Of course, the fleas have no idea that it's a dog. They don't know what a dog is. Uh, if you asked them to define a dog, they wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, too much for them to grasp. All they know is they found an agreeable habitat with plenty of fur to hide in and a plentiful supply of blood beneath the surface. Now, I was in two minds about this one because um, it's not always the best thing to start a sermon by saying to everyone, we're a little bit like those fleas. Um, and maybe we're not like fleas in some respects. Um, we're not in some respects, just to be clear. But I do want to say, when it comes to understanding the, the sheer scope and uh, the depth of who God is and his character, in a sense, we find ourselves in the position of a flea being asked to describe the dog on which they live. The subject of, of God, the Lord, is just so enormous. Um, in many ways, he is so far beyond our ability to grasp his nature and his character with our tiny minds. And yet, he has revealed to us a great deal about himself. And the extent to which he has done that is the extent to which we can know him. And so this term, we're looking at, in particular, some of those names that God has given to himself, the ways in which he's described in the Bible. And today, this very personal name, which he shares with Moses, I am who I am. I'm picking up on last week, where Tom, of course, talked about the name the Lord, Yahweh, the name of God. Now, there are several things this, um, this draws our attention to. Um, Exodus 3, verse 14, as Moses says to God, when I say, the God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God replies, I am who I am. This is what you'll say to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The first thing I think that this reminds us of is how much greater the God who is speaking to Moses is, than all the other gods of the ancient world, or indeed the modern world. There were many gods in the ancient world. There are many gods today, aren't there? Many beings, real or imagined, that inspire people's devotion and their worship in one way or another. And in the ancient world, these gods have names. Things like the god of the Jebusites, or whichever of those ites we've just heard about. You know, the the river god, or the sun god, or the god of the harvest, or whatever it might be. Um, names like this, they all said something about where each god was to be found, or, or over what things this particular god had influence. But of course, all of them also communicated something about the limitations of these gods. Now, the god of the Jebusites was not the god of the Hittites, or the Egyptians. The god of the sun was not the god of the sea. Maybe this is just part of the significance of this name that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, gives to Moses. I am who I am. Or possibly, as it says in our footnote there, I will be who 
I will be who I will be. The tense in Hebrew could be either way. Maybe it's both ways. This God, the Lord, capital letters, is so much greater than any other God. Um, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, he, he has many names which express aspects of who he is and the things over which he has sovereignty. A God who provides, God who heals, God the shepherd, and so on. But if you want a name which captures who he is, like these other gods who were, I want to say, in a real sense, captured by their names, their names put them in a box and said, this is what you are God of. Well, there is no name that can capture a God like the God of the Bible, any more than the mind of a flea can grasp or capture the nature of a dog. What is his name? I am who I am. I will be what I will be. Um, this is why the holy name of God is yod heh Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. Um, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. Sometimes previously pronounced Jehovah. Actually not pronounced at all by observant Jews. Partly because the correct pronunciation is not completely clear. Hebrew vowels being what they are. And they want to be absolutely certain they are not saying the personal name of God wrongly. God who is greater. Um, secondly, this is a name which says to us, God exists. Now, if you know the situation of Moses at the beginning of Exodus 3, this is quite scary, isn't it? I know it's a familiar story, and it's been in many children's Bibles with happy flames and Moses with his sandals off. This is quite a scary situation when we stop to think about it. He's standing in front of a burning bush, not burning up, and the living God is speaking to him out of it. It's not surprising that he's hiding his head in fear, is it? Verse 6, just from hearing God's voice. But it gets worse, because this terrifying God has a job for Moses. Forty years previously, Moses has fled from Egypt after he's murdered someone, and the most powerful man in the world was trying to kill him. Now he has to go back to the most powerful man in the world, or at least his successor, and tell this man that his precious slaves are to be set free. Um, this is a bit like being sent to the President of the United States to tell him that his country is no longer allowed to use any oil or no longer allowed to use the internet. I don't know what the equivalent of slaves would be in the modern world. They were the thing on which the Egyptian economy turned, the thing on which uh, their prosperity was built. So Moses asks God for his name. And God tells him, as we've heard, I am who I am. And if you look at the footnote for verse 16, the Hebrew word, which is expressed in English translations, Lord, capital letters, sounds like the Hebrew for I am. It's a name which is used 6,800 times in the Bible. And here in verse 14 and verse 15, the name and the verb are kind of used in parallel almost a play on words in God's name. And what a name it is. God is. He exists. That's one thing we say from it, isn't it? It's not the only thing by any means. Um, but it's the second thing about those Egyptian gods, those Jebusite gods, all those ancient gods. Not only is their sphere of influence limited to the harvest or the sea or the sky or whatever it might be, actually, they're not real. But the Lord exists. And in the next few chapters of Exodus, he doesn't only claim the name I am, 
he demonstrates his reality, doesn't he? And I'm sure most of us know the story well. Through all those devastating plagues, it will be brought to Egypt, leading to Pharaoh finally having to agree to the demand to free his slaves. So undeniable and unendurable is the reality of the I am. Now, okay, you feeling underwhelmed yet? Not by the Lord, but by the fact that a vicar standing at the front of church um, on a Sunday declaring that God exists. That's maybe not that controversial or that surprising. You'd hope not, wouldn't you? Let's not go there. But Pharaoh also soon comes to believe in the Lord, if you read the story. Um, In fact, there are many people, you, you may know some of them, who don't worship God, but nevertheless, if they were pushed, would say they probably do believe in him. If you read um, James chapter 2 in the New Testament, he points out that even demons believe in God. So believing that he exists actually isn't enough, is it? Um, Here's an illustration from um, Andrew Wilson's book, Incomparable. Um, This has kind of been the inspiration for doing this little series, um, the starting point for it. And he says we need to be oxygen believers in God, not nitrogen believers in God. And what does he mean? Or maybe, I don't know how good you were at school when it came to science, a long time ago for some of us, but maybe you remember that the composition of air is primarily, it's it's about 79% nitrogen, nearly 80%, and most of the rest is oxygen and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, Now, if I asked you if you believed in nitrogen, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I imagine that most of us probably do, and we accept that science. But if I then asked you, well, how does it affect your life? What difference does it make to you? Again, I'm, without asking you this question, I don't know, but I would guess the answer for most of us would be, well, not very much, really. You believe it's there. You don't particularly want it. You don't give it too much thought, and it doesn't affect your decision-making. But oxygen is a different matter, isn't it? Do you believe in oxygen? Again, I'm going to go for 100% yes on that one. But not only that, you're probably well aware that you completely depend on oxygen. Um, If you didn't have any, how long would we give you? Two minutes, three minutes, maybe five at the outset. We're all completely dependent on it to breathe, to burn fuel, to create warmth. It makes a difference to our lives. Um, It's why we don't live underwater, whatever busters may say. Maybe that's a bit niche for Sunday evening, I don't know. It means that, you know, if we need an inhaler, that's a really important thing because it's enabling us to get oxygen makes all kinds of difference to our lives. Here's the thing. Many people are nitrogen believers in God. Uh, They're not atheists as such. Not that many people are atheists in in my experience. They believe that he is there, even if they're not quite sure who he is. But they don't acknowledge him, and they certainly don't let him influence their lives too much, their decisions. And that's not enough. The Lord, I am who I am. His name declares his reality, but also that he defines reality. His influence is so wide and so great over every aspect of the world, of our lives, that it would be foolish to just ignore him or avoid him. Holy and fearful though he may be to sinners like you and me, as Moses realised. We need to be oxygen believers in God. That's what it means to be a disciple, someone who appreciates how significant the Lord is to every area of life. That's the name that God revealed to Moses. I am 
who I am. Right at the centre of our understanding of his character, God wants us to know that he always was, he always is, and he always will be. Um, So we've seen uh, a little bit so far um, in Exodus, the God who is I am, I am who I am, um, so much greater than all those other gods, um, so great that we can only fathom him to the extent that he reveals himself to us. Um, Not only is he great, he is real. He's the God who exists and who shows himself to be real in the world. Well, thirdly, though, and we need to see this too, he is eternal and he's revealed in Jesus. Now, we're pretty used to the idea of time travel these days, aren't we? You know, we've all seen Doctor Who, Back to the Future probably, Avengers Endgame, whatever it might be. But of course, that is only fiction. The idea that a person from one point in history, you know, that I can go and see what it was like to be at the court of Napoleon, you know, or at the time of um, cave dwellers or something, is just a fiction. But when Jesus says to the people in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. He's talking about someone who died long ago, isn't he? And yet what he's saying is so much more than just time travel. Now it is true, it makes no sense um, to think of Jesus and Abraham as contemporaries. I'm sure we don't do that. I know we sometimes sort of conflate bits of the Bible together. Actually, the the time gap between Abraham's life and Jesus being born in Bethlehem is very similar to the time gap between that event in Bethlehem and 2023. But Jesus didn't need to travel in time to meet Moses' great ancestor because what Jesus is saying here is something of a completely different order. Um, All of these Judeans here in John chapter 8 They're getting more and more angry as the passage goes on, aren't they? Uh, And they're ready to take whatever Jesus says and try to use it against him. Um, They seem to think that somehow he is claiming to either travel in time or just to be really old. You know, you're not even 50, they say, let alone 2,000 in verse 57. But again, what Jesus is saying here goes way beyond that. Um, He's making great claims, isn't he, in this whole section about the Father's work in him and through him. So he can even say in verse 51, whoever obeys my word will never see death. When they accuse him of being a Samaritan, wrong nationality from their point of view, or even of being demon-possessed, Jesus doesn't back down, does he? He goes even further in verses 54 to 56. My father is the one who glorifies me. I know him and obey his word. And verse 56, your ancestor Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And when Jesus says this, he doesn't mean that Abraham has somehow travelled forward 1,800 years in time, or however many years it was, something round about that, to see how God's promises to him would be fulfilled all those years later in Jesus. Or even that he merely looked forward to that day. Again, what Jesus is saying is even greater than that. And, of course, the climax, we can't really miss it, can we, especially when we've just read Exodus 3, comes in verse 58, after they've scoffed at him that what what he says is ridiculous because he's not even 50. Jesus makes the statement, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, I think that's what they call a mic drop moment. If he had wanted simply to claim that he was very ancient, that he had... He was so ancient, he'd even been around before the time of Abraham. He could have said, couldn't he, before Abraham was born, I was. 
Jesus doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. And again, having read Exodus 3, we can just pick up some of the echoes in the implications there, can't we? And so can the people who were with Jesus. They knew their Bibles very well. And they pick up stones um, because they understand that these words are a claim for blasphemy. They would be blasphemous. They weren't true. If Jesus was just very, very old, or even if he'd somehow reappeared hundreds of years after having lived, that would be pretty amazing, actually, wouldn't it? But before Abraham was, I am. Now imagine maybe the back of church, over there near Jenny, and uh, there's Andy behind the screen tonight, isn't it? The back of church is 2023, uh, and in the middle of church, somewhere just behind Dick and, and Maggie, is at the time of Jesus, when he was around, when John chapter 8 took place. So somewhere not too far from me would be the time of Abraham. Jesus isn't claiming that he's visited these different times in history, that he's kind of popped in there and popped back in his TARDIS or whatever it is that the Lord God uses. It's much more than that. He transcends them. I am, he says. He is eternal. He is eternal at the time of Abraham. He is eternal when he's born in that stable, as we'll be celebrating again in a few months' time. He is eternal in 2023. And don't imagine that I'm restricting this timeline from 1800 BC to 2023. You know, it continues both ways longer than we can imagine. And of course, even more than that, um, there are bells that are being rung in John 8, aren't there, about God's personal name a name he revealed to Moses. Um, Jesus, if you glance back in John 8 to verses 24 and 28, he's already kind of hinted at this as he's given answers to some questions by saying, yes, I am he, which also echoed God's voice in the prophet Isaiah. We don't have time to look those ones up at the moment. But now here in verse 58, he leaves them in no doubt about whose name is rightfully his name. That name of God we heard in Exodus 3, the Lord, capital letters, the great God of all things, the God who is real, that's Jesus, the eternal one, the one who was there with Abraham and with Moses and in Bethlehem and with us. Uh, here he is, not only appearing in the flames of a burning bush, but appearing to all these people in Jerusalem and Galilee in the first century. Who shall I say sent me? Moses asked, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Jesus answers them, before Abraham was, I am. He's God of all things, not just some things. He is the God who exists. And as Francis Schaeffer, some of you may know that writer, put it in one of the titles of his books, he is the God who is there. The God who is eternal. And also in Jesus, he is the God who is present. Not just to those who stood with him uh, in the first century in Israel, but as he said to his disciples after his res resurrection, behold, I am with you until the very end of the age. He's the God who is here with us now. In one sense, um, trying to preach on a verse like I am who I am whenever 
anyone tries to preach on anything, and there's quite a number of people here who've had a go at it in one form or another, I know, we're only ever scratching the surface. But perhaps more than ever, um, it feels like I'm a flea standing at the front of church tonight before a God who is enormous and yet wonderful. Um, there are so many things I haven't said. The last thing I would like to say, though, is just think back to Moses' fear um, as he stood before that bush, taking off his sandals, holding his head in his hands. Um, fear of the one who was in front of him, even before he had fear of what he was being sent to do. But because that God who is the Lord is Jesus Christ, um, we need have no fear. Um, he goes with us this week into the different situations that we're going to find ourselves in. We're no more holy in and of ourselves than Moses was, that murderer who'd been uh, sent away from Egypt because he needed to escape the Pharaoh. And yet, we are invited into the presence of this great eternal God.